to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am honored to welcome Jennifer Burton Flyer. Uh, they are a therapist in private practice and a senior faculty member with the Trauma Resource Institute. She teaches both uh, the trauma and community resilience models with TRI, uh, one of which I took, and that's how we met, and has traveled extensively in the U.S. and to Northern Ireland to share wellness skills with various groups and cultures. CRM focuses on stabilizing the nervous system or chasing our inherent resiliency when we are under stress or triggered by traumatic events. We're going to talk a bit about that today. Uh, by learning some simple concepts about the body and brain, we can learn to reduce our stress responses, creating more balanced and ease in our daily lives. Uh, Jennifer is licensed in San Francisco and worked with families and children at the Talk Like Family Support Center before relocating to her hometown in Los Angeles. And while she focuses primarily on her work with the Trauma Resource Institute, and private clients in both LA and the Bay Area. She previously worked for nine years at Sherman Oaks Hospital, partial hospitalization program and intensive outpatient program, serving adults suffering from chronic mental illness. Currently, her practice centers around a specialization in healing trauma and attachment patterns with teens, adults, couples, and families. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, Nico. It's nice to see you. <laughs> I know it's so funny to be on the other side. So I've been in like two long weekend trainings uh, with Jennifer as the facilitator. And so I have to admit, I myself am like a little nervous because to me, I'm like, Jennifer's the expert and she's here to teach me. And now I'm interviewing you. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be interviewed by you. And, and it was great meeting you through the training. So I'm just hoping I can uh, do it all justice and do your podcast justice too. So Thank you. Oh, I have no doubt. Um, okay, so I know we can't cover like the entire nervous system um, in, I mean, that would be many episodes and many trainings, but right. for listeners and maybe assuming layperson listeners, um, what are some like important tidbits about the nervous system that are important for folks to understand in trauma response? You know, I think that's a great question, and I think there's so much complexity to the nervous system and and so much more that's being researched and known all the time. So I just for simplicity's sake, I think the easiest way to look at it is that we do have this gas pedal and brake in the body, and again, really simplified here, but that really ideally we want that gas pedal and brake like the engine in a car to be flowing throughout the day. We want the car to work well and our bodies are really built to do that. Um, and when we have trauma and stress though, we can have either too much gas or too much brake and that's when we run into problems and the engine either, you know, hitches up and won't go or the, and you know, the brakes fail or whatever happens. And then you're kind of off the rails when that happens. So the whole point in getting to know your body is that even though there's this autonomic and automatic process, there's also ways that somatically we can um, focus on the body and we can actually drive, you know, and I think oftentimes when we have trauma and stress, we think we're out of control. 
And how does it happen to where the, I guess if we're using the break in the engine metaphor, like how does it happen to where things get off? Like what, what happens for someone's body to have a break that is maybe too sensitive or a gas pedal that is too sensitive to get out of that sweet spot? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so many things could happen for that to happen. And I think, you know, this is why I like to talk about trauma and stress interchangeably because some people will be like, well, I don't really have trauma or I don't really identify with this or that or the other. Collectively, I would say together over the last year plus, we've all been through a pretty traumatic and stressful time with the pandemic and the way it's impacted us on many levels. And as well as, you know, sociopolitically, what we're experiencing as well, we just we all have, you know, tremendous amounts of stress going on, I think, or stress of various levels. And, you know, any of those can throw us off to where um, the sympathetic branch of the nervous system, which is the activation or the gas pedal can run on overdrive. And then we get sort of stuck in this place of going too fast or, you know, feeling like things are out of control or we get panicky or anxious, you know, hypervigilance, all that exists with, you know, way too much gas. And then conversely, we can feel like the body can feel like we're in a crash, you know, or a dive where we feel almost collapsed or numb or depressed or sluggish. Yeah, frozen or sluggish and and just like we're not at our best self in those moments, either with either too much gas or too much break. And what we really want are, you know, blended states. And, you know, polyvagal theory talks a lot about that. And I don't want to get too. <laughs> oh, go, if you want to explain some polyvagal theory, I've done it a little on the podcast, but I'm, anything you want to <laughs> share about it, I think is so necessary. And for folks listening, just Google polyvagal theory to get like a visual representation. I think it's crucial for everyone to know so they can track their own gas and brake situation. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when when we just sort of like bring it down is that, you know, the the spinal cord really is what enervates our our sympathetic nervous system, which is that gas pedal. And then we've got this vagus nerve that runs through the whole front of our body um, and links up with our brain, our eyes, our heart, our throat. And when we're in the social engagement place, we're in the ventral part of the vagus nerve. And when we're collapsed or in that dive, we're in the dorsal part of the of the vagus. And that's that parasympathetic kind of crash. So what we really need when I talk about those blended states is like, let's say for states of curiosity and play, right? We need to be, we need to have ventral vagal with sympathetic arousal. So it's not about never having gas. We want some gas, you know? And then in order to have rest and stillness and sleep and yummy stuff like that, we need to have the parasympathetic, you know, branch of that nervous system along with um, the ventral vagal. So it's the dorsal and ventral working together in concert to create, states of rest and you know I know you talk a lot about sexuality on your podcast too and so in order to have a healthy sexual response cycle for example women in particular need to have a parasympathetic restful state that they go into in order to have the yummy sympathetic arousal that goes with you know Mm. really lovely yummy hot sex you know so yeah so it's a combination like obviously your body needs some of that excitatory gas to get turned on to get excited sometimes to be a little 
a little like not scared, but you know, a little uh, turned on or physically. Yeah. I mean, we call it arousal. And some people, when they hear aroused, they think of sex. But arousal is really, really just your body's system turning on, right? That gas pedal. Right. And so you right. need that. And if it gets too much, then then maybe the situation doesn't feel right, or it's not consensual, or it's scary, or you're so anxious right. that you can't orgasm. Right. Right. So it's too it's too much. Right. And so that's really what you're talking about is that polyvagal piece of the ventral vagal, which is regulating almost like, and I'm going to, I'm going to change metaphors for a moment to a bicycle, but like, you know, the hand brakes on a bike, if you're going down a hill and you apply the brakes, you can gauge like how quickly you're going down that hill. And so the ventral part of the vagus nerve actually applies a, a bit of brake. And so it's modulating and regulating how much sympathetic arousal to allow, how much, you know, how how much gas to bring on, how much to let go. And so again, but if we flip into a state of fear in any space, whether sexually or otherwise, that ventral vagal goes offline. It's the, the you know, it, it goes away and then we've got too much gas. The sympathetic takes over. And honestly, sometimes we need that in real survival situations. We need those survival responses of tend to befriend and fight and flight and freeze and all those things that we kind of hear about now more regularly than ever. We want our body to be, go into survival if we need it. What we don't want it to do is live in those states when we don't need it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like you said, go into it when it's, when there isn't a threat. <laughs> when there isn't a threat. And so this is exactly what I'm talking about. What we want to have happen is, you know, this is why I like the, the somatic skills so much because it really allows us to get in the driver's seat and I could actually affect my own nervous system and change my response and change how I'm behaving with it. And I can self-regulate during times of stress. And if I'm with somebody actually in relationship or if I'm with a collective or a community, which I also like to think about in terms of, you know, culturally, a, a lot of times we need a collective around us that can also keep us in regulation. So there can be this self-regulation and co-regulation that we have being around others or being around a partner or a friend. Um, and all of those are the things that help us drive this nervous system better. And what is the, like, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but what is the like evolutionary need for the gas uh, for for the brake pedal to go off so intensely the way the way i learned it from you is that if there's potentially a threat that you come up against that your body feels like it cannot face then your nervous system does what it thinks it's supposed to do which is let's conserve our resources let's freeze almost like playing dead and kind of wait until the threat passes is that right that's right. So sometimes in a in a freeze state, that can sometimes keep us the most safe. And actually, the default when a lot of, if a lot of us have had you know painful, awful things happen in childhood, you know we're small and everything else is bigger. And the default is actually to just shut down. The body is trying to preserve life. You know we're built for survival at all costs, and so the body will work to do that. And whether I need to fight off this thing or whether I need to just lay down and play dead, you know, the body will do what it has to do in order to survive. We, what we don't want, though, is to end up living in those states. You know, what happens if we do? Part. Well, then I think that's when you see 
Um, lots of times people can develop symptoms of depression or panic or anxiety states or, you know, where you get diagnosed with these different symptoms and they're really driven from things that have happened in our lives in a very dysregulated nervous system. And, you know, this is, you know, we see the chronic effects. We can see physical illness. We can see um, all kinds of different things that can happen to the body as a result of living in those states chronically. I used to have panic attacks. I had my first one when I was 13 and I didn't know what it was at the time, but you know, they worsened over time. And until I got to the body-based skills, until I knew I could drive this, I really felt controlled by it. And that's the other thing. I think it makes us feel out of control. It makes us feel like some I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. You yeah, know, I'm not responding I, the way I want to respond. I'm not responding the way I want to respond. And I have no say over it and no control over it. And I think, you know, from from my perspective and what I love about a lot of these other therapies, including the community and trauma resiliency models, are they let me get in the driver's seat and they tell me that I'm not broken. And they tell me that there's things that are right with me. They tell me that there are strengths that I have that I've already had all along that if I can capitalize on them, it's almost like a, like a mental health fitness workout for your nervous system. You know, it's the, it, and I can strengthen that muscle and keep strengthening it and keep strengthening it. And that's actually, you know, honestly, I mean, I did work obviously in therapy, but it was my practicing of those skills over and over again that uncoupled the panic response. So I don't have panic attacks anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's, I want to hear about those approaches and, and how they've helped. Mm-hmm. And I just want to restate for folks tuning in for the first time. I think I've said this on the show before, but, um, and please correct me if I'm misspeaking, because you're definitely more trauma informed, I think, than I am. <laughs> um, I, that, the body in so many ways is very smart, but in a lot of ways it's pretty dumb. <laughs> and when I say dumb, I mean that it's, you know, we, I define trauma really broadly as anything that overwhelms the nervous system because the body doesn't differentiate necessarily between traumas. Um, like I think, sure, there are certain things that can uh, trigger us much more and it looks the same in the body when something is overwhelming. And so I think in our field, there's a lot of times that people kind of have this hierarchy of like, oh, well, my trauma is not so bad. It was only this. And it doesn't matter. The body still responds the same way to a threat or a past threat or a trigger because it's like, oh, this is a threat. And it's the same response. It's not like doing something different if it's like a shittier trauma necessarily. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Because it's the perception of safety or danger. And you can't tell me from the outside, well, that's not really scary. If my body says it's scary, it's scary. If my body says flip out, it's going to flip out. You know, we can't, you know, we have to honor the perception of what's happening on the inside, you know, and while I love the important and and it is so important to be trauma informed because, you know, and I know even there's, there's a book now out, Oprah and um, Bruce Perry wrote a book about what happened to you. And that's actually trauma informed, right? That, that whole approach, what happened to you is a trauma informed approach, but then we have to take it one step further to the resiliency informed approach. Right. So we need to know what happened to us and that, oh, this is what's impacting my body. That's really important to know. And I certainly needed to know that I needed to have all the information. I'm somebody who likes to know why or what's happening. But then what? (laughs) 
But then what? Then what do you do about it? Okay, thanks telling for telling me that I have you know trauma and stress <laughs> in my body. I, I love knowing that. It's like then what the heck am I going to do about that? You know. Well, that, that's why I got interested in in somatic approaches. And when we say somatic, that means like body based approaches because I found that talk therapy was severely limiting. Right, you get to yeah. talk about these things and what's happening, and for a lot of it you're staying in the, in the head, you know, it's very, um, it's not body based. And so, yeah, what, what are these? So now you've, you've figured out you have trauma, you figured out you have stress in your body, like, duh, thank you. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. now what, what are some of these resources that you're talking about and, and how do they work? Well, I think the first thing we need to to say is capitalize on what you just said, which is the whole body approach is really using the body as the entry point for healing. And I think that is where it differs from traditional talk therapies or, you know, rather conventional talk therapies, I would say, Um, or even, and again, I'm not knocking cognitive behavioral approaches or things like that, but typically. I think for some and for some people, it's great. And if you feel like you've been saying the same thing over and over and getting stuck, then to right. me, that's an indicator of we need to go to the body. Well, and and from from my perspective, I'm I'm always integrating the body into everything. So if somebody is coming up with something or using a cognitive behavioral approach to to some issue they're dealing with, I'm inevitably going to invite the question of and where do you notice that in your body? So I'm trying to still connect up the body mind all the time because it is connected anyway. And so I'm trying to keep that flow going or restore the flow that maybe was blocked. And that's what these therapies do. The other thing that I think is important to just briefly go back to the polyvagal approach is the other piece that it talks about is that things are driven in the nervous system. 80% is bottom up. Only 20% is brain down. So 80% of our information is coming from our nervous system and the body up to the brain. And only 20% is going the other way. So if we don't intervene at the body level, we're missing 80% of the stuff. And that, I think, is if that doesn't make a case for why we need to pay attention to the body, I don't know. And and a lot of us can walk around feeling like we're just, you know, cut off heads walking around thinking and doing. And it's really not the case. So, yeah, I would love to hear about the, the trauma resource approach and the community resource mm-hmm. approach and mm-hmm. how that. Yeah. What is it? What is that? And, and how does it help? So the community resiliency model, and I'm just going to, you know, read a little note over here because it, you know, is really about helping people to understand the biology of traumatic stress um, and those reactions. And then also to the then restore a sense of well-being in body, mind and spirit. And we then increase a sense of resiliency, which obviously leads to an increased sense of hope. Um, And the community resiliency model is a skills-based model that can be used individually and collectively. It's a set of six skills. We also have an app called iChill that's easily accessible. We have um, a website as well for the iChill. Um, and, And it walks people through the skills of what you can do to restore that balance in your body. And the way we start really is through tracking. So, um, and tracking is about reading your nervous system. It's about paying attention to what sensations are happening in my body. Um, but what we're particularly paying attention to in this model, as, as Elaine miller Kara says, is about chasing the resiliency. Where is it neutral? Where is it pleasant? Where is it better? Where is it less distressing? Because most of us, you know, because we're wired for survival, right? The body is 
smart that way, <laughs> wired for survival, you know, is that um, I need to know if the threat's coming. But the problem is if I get recalibrated to always be in a place of threat or always be in a place of where I'm diving down, that's not helping me at all. Right. So if I and, and I'm used to paying attention to where it hurts or where it's stressful or I have a stress headache or my stomach hurts or all these different things that the minute you focus on your body, oh, my God, I can't breathe. You know, it's just all that all that stuff. And this model actively puts you in that driver's seat of tracking and paying attention to neutral and pleasant to create what I like to call with my clients of both and um what else is true? You know, what else is happening right now besides that pounding of your heart? You know, where is it less? Where is it better? And that's tracking to invite somebody into that experience where instead of, you know, and again, meditation is great in a lot of ways. Some of the forms of meditation that have somebody sit with what arises until it passes through this approach is a little bit more active in that I'm noticing something arising that's upsetting. What else is happening that I might focus on that feels better? And oftentimes when I focus on what's better, it's not a denial of what is. What will happen is I'll notice a lessening of the distress in the inside if I focus on neutral or pleasant sensations. And do we know like why that's happening in the body or it just, I mean, it just does like, I think this is that place of the body's smart and really built for resilience. We're built for survival, but we're also built for resilience. You know, we're built to come back into that flow and into that regulation, the nervous system, the way the breath comes in the lungs and goes out the way our body, you know, our heart pumps the blood through our body. That's a flow. Yeah. It's a rhythm. We're trying to get into that rhythm of the nervous system. And when we focus on something more pleasant or neutral, it actually is unlocking and restoring the rhythm that's inherent in all of us versus when we pay attention to just the beating heart, what am I going to get more of? I'm going to get more of the beating heart, right? Whatever we pay attention to is really what grows. And most of us pay attention to really unpleasant, distressing things. Yeah. I mean, that's true for everything, right? We always look at like the negative experiences or the times we got screwed over or the bad stuff. Right. Right. I am so grateful to my ongoing sponsors, Uberlube and Field. I'm guessing if you have listened before that you know about Uberlube, but it's always time to refill that lube bottle, or at least if you're me, because I use lube generously always. They are offering listeners a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. Remember that using lube doesn't mean that you aren't turned on or that you're not doing a good job and all that shameful stuff. It's really just a tool that helps to maximize your pleasure experience. Uberlube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes the skin. So it's good for all parts of the body, even your hair. I use it to help ease the frizzies that I get. Uberlube has no scent or flavor, which is great for sensitive skin. Remember to make sure it's compatible with whatever barrier method or toy you're using, but it's definitely compatible with your human skin. Lube is supposed to enhance touch, not overpower it, unless you want it to. Uberlube adds a thin layer that leads to just the right amount of slip while still allowing for skin-on-skin sensations. Right now, they're offering listeners 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping just use code S-A-N-D-S at uberlube.com. And because Uberlube sinks in as a good moisturizer, you might not even have to wash it off before you get on your phone to check out Field app. 
You can download the Field app for free and support our show by using the link in the episode's description. Just click the link in our episode description to get the Field app for free today. Field is the alternative dating app for couples and singles. The app was originally designed for people seeking threesomes, but it's become a place for couples, throuples, and singles and more to connect with like-minded, open folks who are wanting to have some non-monogamous experiences. The app is inclusive to all, no matter your gender or orientation. When you join, you can choose to identify as over 20 plus genders and sexualities. I was actually already using Field before they sponsored the podcast, and I've met some really fun folks. It's been, yeah, it's been really fun to be on the app and have options to really shamelessly share my wants and desires with folks who are looking for some of the same things. It's also a good way to just build some like-minded community. And it was a lifesaver of sexy fun as an outlet during the pandemic, connection with people digitally if that's all you're looking for. And here's some great news. You can download that field app for free and support our show by using the link in the episode description. Just click the link in our episode description to get the field app for free today. Don't forget, the more you support the advertisers, the more you support the podcast. Now back to the episode. I think something that's been a a bit of a barrier for some of my clients is if it's never been safe for you to be in your body, it's yeah. a big ask for someone to say, what are you noticing in your body? Like sometimes yeah. I think starting out folks almost go blank or they feel like they have to make something up because it's like, mm. I don't feel shit in my body or like, what yeah. do you mean? Yeah. What do I feel in yeah. my body? What does that mean? Yeah. So yeah. any, any tips for like people who are just starting out who maybe haven't felt safe in their body? Yeah. Is it just, is it just practice? Is it just slowness? I, I, the couple things I would say about that, first of all, is that I really do a lot of education for clients before I invite them into a body awareness, especially if they're not used to it. And by the way, even a lot of athletes, dancers, you know, people who you think would be really embodied actually are so taught to like perform through the pain that, that they don't actually focus on the body as much as you would think, you know? Um, Totally. And so, you know, I, I have a client with whom I'm really, after all this time that we've been together, I've been just educating her and dropping in resources and dropping in things that don't suck, things that any, a resource, by the way, just to define it, that's our second skill. And a resource is anything that doesn't suck. It's anything that gives us comfort, joy, or peace in our life that we could then use to make that picture bigger. Because sometimes I need something to hold on to in order to even sense anything pleasant on the inside. So I wouldn't just invite any anybody to say, Hey, what do you notice in your body? Just randomly. I would, I would actually start with, with a resource first and with a resource building exercise. And then over time, like with that client I was just talking about, we're working just at the edges of numb, you know, where she senses something and where she doesn't and trying to kind of wake up the body. But this is really, really painstaking small work with somebody who has you know, multiple traumas. And so that needs to be done with a therapist. So how do we do self-care is filling our toolkit with resources. If we don't have things that we can organically call up right away, again, it can be a a tree, a color, a favorite food, a favorite song. Um, Yeah. A memory, a pet, a rock. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it really can be anything. And that's why I like the anything that doesn't suck, which actually came from a um, patient I treated at the Sherman Oaks Hospital years ago. And I credit her for, for that for that phrase, because I love awesome. it. And, 
And I think, you know, we can cultivate them over time. We can come up with imaginary ones that, you know, it could be places we've been or not. We could create imaginary ones um, as well. The other thing that I lean into um, is one of our other skills, which is help now, which is a set of several different things that people can do, because sometimes we need to focus outside before I can focus in the body. Mm -hmm. So I need to name some things that are in the room, or I need to pay attention to the temperature or I need to drink, you know, sip something warm or cool or um, identify colors or count or use textures. I use textures a lot of, you know, what's the difference between this, you know, fabric of my sweater and the chair I'm sitting in, you know, and can I notice that it's soft or smooth or describe that. And then I might invite as you're describing it, does anything change? with your heart rate, with your breath, with your muscles. Those are really three easy ways to start tracking is a change. Sometimes for people, it's also an absence of, if we have an overwhelming, you know, state of anxiety, it's like a turning down of the volume of that, you know, or if it's, I've been, you know, mostly numb, it's a feeling of a little bit more energy in my system, you know? Right. So it's, it, it doesn't, it, there isn't really a right or wrong way to do it. I like when you say your clients are worried, might be worried they're going to do it wrong. And I often have to say, there's no right or wrong way to do this. We're just trying to make friends with and get to know your nervous system. Yeah. Um, see what resonates and what, what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we've taught, you know, we've taught these skills all, you know, all over the world, but you know, we did a training years ago at, um, uh, at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And, and part of our training is that they, then the people who learn it teach it back to us because they're going to be the ones delivering the skills in their communities. Um, and one of those trainees said, you know, my nervous system has always been talking to me, but now I actually have a way to talk back and have a conversation. So it's really yeah. we're inviting a conversation. Otherwise, that's what that's when we feel out of control. Something else has taken me over. I have no control over it. I'm screwed. You know, we don't want that. And I love that you go out and teach, you know, to community through, through apps and through education stuff. Um, I wish that every area of life was trauma and resource informed. What are some of the dangers of folks not being informed about that? And maybe how have you seen it negatively impact people? For, for example, healthcare providers or therapists who maybe don't have a knowledge of this stuff. How is that affecting clients, lay people, patients? You know, I, I think that's where, you know, one of the things we talk about in the model is how trauma and stress can affect us across all these different domains. So they affect us behaviorally and they affect us cognitively and, um, you know, physiologically and all these different spiritually, you know, we can have all these issues. And, you know, when you think about the physical, like I was saying earlier, oh, my stomach hurts or I have these chronic migraines and what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the doctor. What is the doctor going to do? They're going to medicate the migraine without maybe inviting a curiosity as to what else is going on in your life that might be driving this right now. Right. right. Um, and, and one of the I big ones I see in, in sex therapy mm -hmm. is obviously like people say they have erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation and they'll go to a urologist or, you know, someone mm -hmm. like that and they'll just get prescribed medication. And look, sometimes that is a helpful tool to help people understand that they can, do it or whatever. And it's not looking at like, what's going on? Like, why is there anxiety? Why is this happening? Is it really physically caused? Or is it something else? Yeah. Is it trauma? Is it anxiety? And so I think the main thing I've seen 
when I've taught clients about the nervous system is first and foremost, it's like just a, an anger and a frustration because they're like, why has nobody fucking told me this before? I've been living in this body for my whole life and I don't even know what was going on. And, and the people that I'm supposed to trust maybe for healthcare also aren't telling me what's like possible here, or they don't know it's possible. And so things get missed or skipped over and it's so frustrating. We're missing huge pieces of the story. You know, I think in those cases, and I also have had several people, I've had women and men in my in my practice. One came to me 29 years old with, he was right, he had an appointment to have surgery because of erectile dysfunction and had horrendous childhood sexual trauma. Um, and as I started teaching him about his body and just teaching him regulatory skills, he didn't need to have the surgery. Now we're not through all of the trauma processing and he does still use some medication, you know, for um, sexual function, but his life is radically different than it was when he walked into my office. And I'm not saying that's because of me. It's not because of me. It's because, and that's what I love about it, you know, is that if I can teach somebody and this is where we're missing the boat, what if we could, you know, to me, if this is a movement that, you know, I've often said if I could go on Oprah with like a bullhorn, like you can regulate your nervous system and you and you can regulate your nervous system. You know, I want to be like handing it out, you know, far and wide, because that to me is is empowerment. That to me is feeling more autonomous that, you know, we have this sort of. um and I think especially with everything that's been going on in the world, you know, the sense of hopelessness or helplessness or powerlessness that comes on. And then what happens to the body as a result of that, right? And how many of us are leaning into, you know, medical professionals and things like that? And I'm not saying to let me be clear that when there's a medical thing going on, we need to address the medical thing that's going on. But, and <laughs> also, if a medical professional is aware of this nervous system component, is aware that trauma and stress can affect it, then what can we do to partner? And then we're partnering rather than this piece is doing medication and this piece is doing, you know, maybe nothing. Maybe the person never finds out about their nervous system. And I've heard the same thing. Why didn't anybody ever tell me about this? Why didn't anybody ever show up? You know, and I think also to, to just pull the lens even wider, you know, um, I know that the Trauma Resource Institute recently posted that there's, um, you know, there's a, a study called the Adverse Childhood Event Experiences Survey um, that really is about the impact of negative childhood experiences on health outcomes later in life. But those ACEs, and now they're calling it PACEs because they're actually factoring in resiliency factors, the pleasant things that happen that actually mitigate, you know, our ACE score. Um, But in North Carolina, they're actually starting a task force to bring it into the court system. Because Mm. guess what? If they are informed, if they have trauma information, if they know about the body and the nervous system and how adverse childhood experiences might impact and they could educate from fundamentally, right? How does that change systems? That's what I think we can really go for. Systems could change if we could, right? Come together and know this better. You know, how could we help racially, culturally, socioeconomically? How could things be different if we bring in this awareness and this knowledge? Yeah. And I mean, just kind of tying it into that, um, as I think sentient, I don't know, as people in bodies, like you said, there are also ways that we 
regulate based on how people around us are in their nervous system, right? So because of that, we can amp each other up. Like if you're fighting with a partner, your nervous systems can like start amping each other up, but we can also help regulate each other. And the word you use for that is co-regulation. Um, what yeah. What is that and, and how does that work? So I, I think I'm going to use a little bit of the language of, of, of the community and trauma resiliency models here in that, you know, going back to that gas pedal break metaphor that we were using at the top, um, we call um, being in your resilient zone um, sort of your best place in your body, mind, spirit. And that's where the gas pedal and brake are flowing well. And then when we get too much sympathetic arousal or too much gas, then we're in the high zone. And when we get too much brake, we're in the low zone. And so I'm just naming those things. And when we talk about co-regulation, oftentimes partners get together where, one, you know, typically we can go back and forth between the high and low zones. And many of us do that. But typically we have like kind of a default, like mine is to go high zone. So I was like a little in the high zone when we started today, not fully, but just at the edge of my resilient zone because I was a little nervous, right? And then I can use my grounding skills and things like that to get regulated. So in a coupleship, oftentimes one goes high zone, that's their default, and the other one goes low zone. Mm, and then meaning that this, one is like big and angry and the other is or shut anxious, down. Or anxious. And then the other one goes to shut down or what looks avoidant, right? And we can look at that through attachment lens. We can look at it a lot of different ways. But when we're looking at it, through the nervous system, it's like people can be in a securely attached, resilient zone place. And then when something happens, or if one of the other partner gets stressed and the one gets anxious and goes up here or angry, and the other one gets triggered by the anger and goes avoidant, low zone goes away, right? That nervous system, initially when we got together, it worked really well because my low zone borrowed from your high zone and got into my resilient zone. <laughs> and your high zone borrowed from my low zone and got into my resilient zone and we worked really well together right but over time right as we as any couples will have chafing and things like that that happen and then you get this patterning of what we might call a pursuer distancer relationship or the clashing that happens but if we can teach people and just and a, I, just a pause for folks who don't know pursuer distancer it essentially is like Often in partnerships, there's one person who, when there's a conflict, they will pursue connection as like, let's work this out right away. Um, I want to reconnect with you. I'm, I'm a little anxious. And then there's the distancer who's like, I need my space. Get Kind of like, give me my independence. Get away from me. And then what happens is the pursuer pursues, the distancer distances, and the more the pursuer pursues, the more the distancer distances, and it's just a vicious cycle. <laughs> And what I love about it, it's such a great way to explain, thank you for explaining that. What I love about it when we look at it through the lens of biology is if we do that, then we're actually taking the shame and blame out of the patterning within the couple. And if, if I can look at my partner and go, wow, they're in the high zone right now, and that's really bumping me into my low zone, now is not the best time to talk. If I can track and pay attention, right, it's not only about when I'm in my resilient zone. I need to know when I'm bumped out. And what the and when your partner's bumped that. out, and when my partner's bumped out, which oftentimes yeah. we can track our partner sometimes even better than we can ourselves. Like, oh, I know that look, or I know that voice tone, or yeah. I know what's happening. One of my favorite takeaways from that perspective is reminding folks, and in my couples and partner work, is that when you are out of that resilient zone, there is no—I want to say there's no way to connect, but it's 
your empathy decreases, your memories kind of go away, you're more likely to misinterpret physical cues, you're more likely to see things as threatening. And so trying to push and work through an argument, a discussion of whatever, when one or both of you is out of that resilient zone, you're not going to get very fucking far. (laughs) Or it could just hurt, hurt you more. But like, how do you... I guess, how do you, conv- I don't want to say convince yourself, but like, let's say you get to that place and you're in it. It's so hard for someone to be like, oh, I'm in this. I'm going to step away when they're already in it. So what do we yeah. do with that? Is it like noticing before you get to that space or is it just practice? I, well, ideally, right? Ideally, we could notice before as we're ramping up, right? Because there right. is actually a ramping or a de-escalation or whatever's happening or a crashing, Right. Right. So ideally we would do that. But if we, let's say we can't, part of it is my getting in with couples, maybe when they are both in their resilience zone to educate them. And it is about practicing, actually. The more we practice both individually or with a partner or with a group, if we practice skills when we're in our resilience zone, we actually widen and deepen the capacity for resiliency so less shit bumps me out, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I also become more effective at knowing when I'm bumped out so I could use something to get myself back in the zone. Right. And so um, I had a couple come into my office, though, in full on fight once they were were actually arguing in my waiting room. And those are always fun. (laughs) It was it's great. You know, and when they came (laughs) in, thankfully, the the woman I had been working with, she had actually brought him, her partner in to learn the skills. Right. Because common language helps. If I can look at you and go, oh, my God, I'm in my outside. Yeah, I'm not in my zone right now. And you get me and you get that. Okay, that's great. I can at least communicate that. It gives us a shorthand of ways to talk to each other, which I love. But she knew some of the skills already. So I invited her to just do grounding on her own self-regulation, right? And I, he didn't know me from Adam. I just met him. And I just said, are you willing to try something with me? And he actually agreed, thankfully. And so we used a help now skill, which is pushing on a wall, which is one of the ways that we, we you could push on a wall with your back or you can push on the wall with your hands. And the idea, of course, when we're doing the skill is to pay attention to your muscles engaging. So I just invited him to notice his muscles pushing and engaging and his legs and his feet on the floor and notice that. And, and he took this big breath and then he said he was feeling a little better and he went and sat down on the couch and he put his arm around his wife and he teared up and he said, I just want us to get along and I want us to have a good future together. Yeah. Totally back in his zone in 30 seconds, I think got of pushing, got him back in his zone. Now I'm not saying that's going to work for everybody, but it is cultivating that muscle, creating new pathways takes practice and time. We've got all these really well-worn super highways for distress and upset that we've been cultivating probably since we were yay high. And so it's going to take some practice. And that would be the same with couples as well. You know, the same, same in those scenarios that if I can teach them that, and that this is biology, it makes it so much more, um, it levels the playing field. I think that's what it does, you know? And so for listeners, I mean, I think obviously it is most helpful to learn this at your pace with the help of a therapist. And obviously there are things you can do on your own. So I would love to hear, I mean, I would love for us to like brainstorm and give some like tangible grounding and help now strategies for folks listening that they can maybe try on their own. Um, Does that sound doable? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we've already talked about some of them, right? So, so with resourcing, for example, and I really love resourcing, because it gives us such a wide array of options to use. 
the thing of it is we have to tell the whole story. It can't just be like, like, I don't know, for example, if I said to you, oh, Nico, you know, my, my dog is my resource. Do you have a picture of a dog in your mind right now? <laughs> yes, but yeah. not really. But, but not, and, and if you do, it's probably not my dog. I don't have a dog, but I'm just saying, yeah. if I, but it's probably not the picture of the dog I even have in my yeah. head that is not my dog. Well, let's, but, so let's, let's say I'm your client and I've come in and you've educated me. We're at a place where we can maybe do some resourcing, um, mm-hmm. just to give folks an idea, like what, what would that look like? What would you invite me to do? So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is see if you can come up with something. So let's talk about resources, which we've already defined as anything that doesn't suck, right? It's anything that gives us comfort, joy, or peace. So as I define that, I'm wondering if you have something that comes to mind. Yeah, I I love rocks. <laughs> and so <laughs> I have some rocks here on my desk that I, that I really like. Here's one. Uh, you can't see, obviously, listeners, but I'm holding up one of my rocks. Um, here's one that I really like that... Uh, I don't know. It's smooth, and I like looking at it. Uh huh. And what colors? What colors of the rock? I wonder if if you had to explain to your listeners the story of this rock. Can you tell me the story of the rock and and yeah. what it looks like and feels like? Yeah, it's. Let's see. It's about the size of like two quarters in length, but it's the thickness is probably like two inches. Um, it's red, and the red parts are kind of like. The red parts almost look like an asteroid with like little divots in them. And then then there's like some like crystally white parts that are kind of opaque in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it has some there's like a mixture of like crevices and also like smooth smooth spots. Yeah, so as you're looking at that almost asteroid like shape and the red and the opaque white spots, um crystal spots and you're noticing the texture of it. I'm just curious, as you turn it around in your hand, as you touch it, what are you aware of in, in your body, if anything? Um, I'm aware of my fingers like going over it and, and enjoying the texture sensation. Um, I feel like a warmness in my chest because my um, I have this rock because since my partner knows that I love rocks, he got me a rock tumbler to like oh. shine my shine my rocks. So I have like a like a warmness in my chest of like, um, oh, my partner is connected to this rock a little bit. Um, and then I also feel I feel like a warmness in my stomach, too, because I'm thinking of like, uh, I don't know, just nature. Yeah. So as you're just paying attention to that, Nico, the warmth in your chest and in your stomach and the connection to nature, the connection to your partner, um, that rock tumbler. I noticed you smiled also when you were talking about it. And I noticed even before I invited you to track, I even noticed you took a little breath because I can see you. So I can, I saw you take a breath Um, and just see if you can pay attention and notice if those sensations are pleasant Neutral. Yeah, definitely, definitely pleasant. I think when you when you notice when you said the smile and the breath, then I smiled and breathed a little more too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm so, noticing that like happened a little bit more. 
And um, notice how the more that we sit with the story of the resource and we sit with all of those feelings and sensations, that the more we sit with that, the deeper it gets, right? It expands. This is back to what we pay attention to is what grows. And so now we're paying attention to something really pleasant. And then you have this sort of cascade of it's not just now the rock that's the asteroid shape and it's smooth and all the colors. Now it's connected to my partner and it's connected to nature and it's connected to all these things about me that I love. And, and just really sensing into that, all the places inside that let you know how this is and seen. for you. <laughs> I don't want to take too much free therapy from you because I could go on like that. I'm like, oh, you're here. Let's do some resourcing forever. But this is Um, is great, though. It's I mean, this is what we do. So we make the story big enough to override sensations that would generally lean toward unpleasant or stress or, or whatever. And that is the power of resourcing. And I would say the same thing holds true with help now with like the pushing or the sipping something or things like that. Like it's it's doing things. The help now is really fast. Resourcing can take like we just took a little bit of time with that right we need to let you marinate yeah. in the story of the resource a little bit to to get into it and so yeah. it's and really I've, practicing yeah I've seen couples do resourcing together which is really cool so thinking of like a something that doesn't suck within them yeah something that doesn't suck within their relationship so for example I had a couple who was thinking of like a really lovely vacation that they took where they got some couples massages on the beach and they were yeah. remembering the smells of the oils and the candles. And so right. that's like a resource that they go to when one of them is high or low is they're like, okay, well, let's do that together. And then they kind of resource each other of like, oh, remember this smell, remember that touch, remember the ocean breeze. Um, and they'll kind of yeah. do that together as they're um, embracing or not, depending on if they're open for touch. Um, but it really makes a, a big difference. And I don't know, I think, I think the main part of it is like you're, I don't want to say you're tricking your nervous system, but you're teaching your nervous system to, yeah, that like this thing is not a threat. So let me show you these other things that aren't threatening um, so that you know that this is not something we have to put the gas pedal or the brake pedal on incessantly for anymore. That's right. We're cultivating it. Right. And, and what I will also say about shared resources to make sure that it's okay for because the couple might have a shared resource, but the standout thing for each one might be a little bit different and that's okay. And making that okay as well. I've had couples do that where it's like a horseback ride in the snow and partners like this part and the other partner like, no, this part. And it's like, okay, both parts, both parts, both Both and what else is true? Uh, You know, it's like, we're, we're, again, it's like restoring that balance, you know, within the system. That's really what you're doing. And that's, you're doing that in a couple. You're doing that for yourself. You know, when we feel more centered, we know what that feels like to feel more grounded or our best selves, you know, and and the iChill app does walk through a lot of these skills. So they really, you know, it really delineates and you can read it or you can, you know, listen to, uh, to it as well. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. This is this has been awesome. Um, I hope that you are feeling more in your resilient zone now as am I. I am. Uh, I am. <laughs> and maybe I should lead people through that when we start the podcast recording. But how can folks check out Trauma Resource Institute or any of the, the stuff that you're doing, hire you, bring you in? Um, yeah, yeah, what are yeah. some ways for folks to get to get involved and get some of the support? 
Well, if um, if organizations or places wanted more teaching, I mean, I'm I'm allowed to go teach under my license. If people want a more extensive kind of training, they can go to Trauma Resource Institute for more information on both CRIM and TRIM, or you can go to my website to reach out to me otherwise. Um, and and there's lots of us out there. You know, there's lots of somatic models. This is the one that I think really speaks to me. And every somatic model I've taken since then, I'm always looking through this lens of grim and trim at it because it really just makes it so simple. Something something that can be so difficult makes it simple. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And just for folks listening, um, you can go back and check out some of those other like uh, somatic models. I think we've talked about EMDR on the podcast a bit, um, Mm -hmm. Reiki, which some may or may not consider part of somatic stuff, hypnosis, but basically it's anything that uh, that incorporates the body. But Jennifer, thank you. This was awesome. And uh, listeners, again, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram for who knows how long at Sluts and Scholars, uh, (laughs) on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. uh, And obviously, uh, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. And don't forget to check out those advertiser discounts. Thank you so much.